Hey, Lily, why do designers like forks? Oh, no, Randy. I don't really want you to ask me <laughs> a stupid joke question, but, but fine, fine. I'll play along. Why do designers like forks? Because they're great stakeholders. Oh, insert tumbleweed here. <laughs> yeah, that's appropriate. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dear. Um, I'm guessing that this has something to do with our guest today. Maybe we're talking about forks? Not exactly. We're going to talk about design, how product people and teams can work together to recognize, avoid, or even tackle design debt. We've got Bansi Mehta. She's the founder and CEO of Kuru UX Design here to give us a lesson on it. And top tip, it doesn't involve using forks to tackle the design debt. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, the lessons are very useful. And I don't think I've ever been in a place where we didn't have some issues related to design decisions made earlier. So let's jump straight into it. After the intro, obviously. The product experience is brought to you by Mind the Product. Every week on the podcast, we talk to the best product people from around the globe. Visit mindtheproduct.com to catch up on past episodes and discover more. Browse for free or become a Mind the Product member to unlock premium content, discounts to our conferences around the world, and training opportunities. Mind the Product also offers free product tank meetups in more than 200 cities. There's probably one near you. Hi, Bansi. Welcome to the podcast. It's so great to be talking to you today. Hi, Lily. Same. Likewise. I've been very excited. <laughs> um, so before we get stuck into our topic, um, it would be fab if you could give us a real quick intro to who you are um, and what you currently do, and also a little bit about your background and how you got into your current role. <laughs> All right. So uh, my name is Bansi. Um, I'm the founder and CEO of uh, Koru UX Design, a firm specializing in enterprise UX for B2B products. I started my career as a designer back in the time when we lived in the world of flash animation and when we were very <laughs> comfortable developing software using the waterfall model, if you know what I mean. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, around 2006, 2007, um, when I was working with SolidWorks, uh, I saw a major shift happening around me from being a product designer who would design and write the specifications and then hand it off to a development team. I found myself where the world was rapidly changing around me with steep rise in number of digital products. Uh, the introduction of smartphones and touch-friendly device uh, in our lives and how that changed how we interact and consume um, digital products and information and um, hence how we design them. Um, I started uh, Koru UX Design in 2011 and it's been 12 years. In last 12 years, um, I've been fortunate to observe and work with variety of B2B companies building SaaS products as well as the products um, that are meant for the in-house use for the workforce. And um, we primarily work with product management on a variety of design functions like UX strategy, uh, user research, UX and UI design um, for new and existing products. 
a major part of my work now involves collaborating with cross-functional teams, um, keeping the stakeholders in alignment with the design work and vision, planning with product management on what to prioritize and why from design point of view, um, planning and budgeting UX initiatives, and um, almost on a daily basis, negotiating on what is essential and um, what can be parked for future, um, and overall keeping the design work in sync with the product vision for a given client. And I always love talking to people who work in agencies because you have this huge advantage of getting to see how multiple different businesses work and operate um, and like what people are doing wrong and what people are doing well. So <laughs> today we were going to talk about design debt and what that is and why companies end up with it. So um, yeah, give us a quick sort of intro into what design debt is. As the term suggests, design debt um, is the debt you collect by taking shortcuts during the design phase or after. Um, let me give a few examples. Um, for example, you introduce a new feature and you know that the trigger for this new feature in the navigation is not where it belongs, but doing it right means that we'll have to do the entire uh, information architecture of the whole menu. Um, which is a lot, and you park it for future. So that's one example. Another example um, is, let's say you have designed a brand new onboarding form um, at the onboarding experience. The stakeholders are excited and everybody feels very good about the solution and decide to launch it with the next release, which is happening um, just in a few weeks. And you decide to do the user uh, user testing later in future or just skip it and not plan for it. Um, now you have collected the design debt because you are releasing or building a feature into the product without really testing and knowing that what how our users would um, respond to that. And the, the design debt could also come in the form where, um, let's say, you know the filters are not working. You have been hearing about it from the customers, from different stakeholders, but again, changing it across product is costly. However, there is this new feature that we are working on, which is very important strategically for the product. And, and you think, just for this once, let me make an exception. Let me introduce a better and um, better filter that works differently, but better. And that's just the beginning. So that's that. Uh, that's the introduction. That's the first time you make an exception where uh, uh, now the filters work differently than the rest of the product. And lastly, um, let's say you design end-to-end -end user journey for a checkout process. Um, you tested it with the users, iterated, um, got sign-off from the stakeholders. And uh, now during the development phase, the team discovers that the third-party contract for the payment gateway is not in place. And um, they think of some alternative payment method, um, thinking that let's still release it with uh, this alternate payment method, which kind of hampers with the original user experience that you had envisioned, but now it's too late in the process. Um, somebody uh, thought of the solution um, and then they just go ahead with it without testing um, with the users all over again, because there is no time to go through the whole process again. And uh, now you have a solution that was created thinking different constraints and conditions in mind, but was released with different conditions and um, things at hand. This is how um, 
these are just some of the examples how, of how during the product design and development phase, um, product teams collect design debt. Nancy, I want to make sure that um, we're characterizing this right, because we've got the two, two sides of the coin on this one. We've got the fact that perfect is the enemy of done, mm -hmm. but at the same time, and then sometimes you release something with a hypothesis and then you learn in production that it works slightly differently than it did in testing or you intended. And you, you do need to go back and redo it, but based on different inputs or different requirements than you originally started. So how much of a problem is this really? Is it uh, that we should try to avoid design debt entirely or we should just be intentional about the debt that we take on. I, I love that phrase, um, Randy. Uh, perfect is the enemy of done. That guides the product teams in so many ways. Sometimes people also abuse it. Um, but nonetheless, most, pro most, most product teams are always constrained by that. And they do want to make releases. Um, so I'm totally with you. It's Design debt is more common and the situations are more common um, than we would like to imagine. Uh, present is uh, present in almost all product teams. Everybody has to deal with them. And you're right. Everybody has uh, would have the constraints and the pressure in terms of releasing the product or, re or, or at, at least release one increment um, faster. And um, sometimes there is pressure from the leadership, from competition and whatnot, right? And there are a variety of reasons that would force the design team or the product team to um, take the shortcuts or make some trade-offs, um, which might not be ideal. So it is common. Uh, the primary reasons are budget and time constraints. Um, lack of expertise is also unfortunately one of the reasons that um, the, the product teams do collect design debt. Um, I hate to say, but good design and design processes are not a norm. Having everybody's alignment, uh, everybody's buy-in and alignment towards how the process should run. And even if we have to jump a few st uh, stages or we have to find a few workarounds, what is the best way to arrive at a compromise? Um, this understanding, um, it evolves in mature teams as they work together, but it's not a given. Um, sometimes it's also because of lack of courage. Um, what I mean by that is on both fronts, right? Um, from designers, for them to put their feet down and say that it's okay to make compromise of this level, but not beyond, or at least make a case and make everyone understand that what will be the implication of it. But also from the product management side, where um, courage to say that we are going to slow down so we can go faster. In fact, um, that's that's the line that I, I picked from one of our clients um, that we were working with, where there are three different instances where different individuals stated that, oh, because of this knowledge or because of this logic that exists in the product, we are not able to build this feature. And when, the, when she heard it for the third time, she was like, you know what? I know that we are, planning, we are trying to do real cool stuff here. We are trying to uh, redesign this app and um, get a new skin and build new features, but I can see that till we fix this um, logic, which has been built into the product of, uh, and it's been many years, I know that we have, it will, we'll have to spend some time on that, but till we don't do that, we are not going to build anything significant on top of that. And um, we spent actually a couple of sprints just fixing that logic, and that opened up a lot of room for us for innovation, um, 
building the design on top of that. Um, so sometimes it also requires courage to uh, put your feet down and say that uh, we are going to slow down so that we can go faster. Um, another factor that I see that affects like why this is a problem for uh, many product team is depending on the UX maturity. If different stakeholders may have different UX maturity, but if the decision makers are, again, not bought into the concepts of uh, that why discovery is important or why user, early user testing is important and even even more advanced decisions, when, when, it, when the time comes to make advanced decision, right, that if the situation demands that you can't do the testing now or you can't do the testing traditional way, what is the alternate way? At that point of time, having this buy-in and having this UX maturity that what is the ideal, even if we are deviating from it, what it would cost. Uh, at some point, there will be an impact. We might have to still come um, engaging and uh, gathering all this information and then making informed decision is really important. And that affects uh, how fast and how big design debt um, team or a product would collect. But overall, I would say that it's simply a daily struggle, as you said, that everybody has <laughs> so many things to uh, deal with, right? So many decisions to make. And um, sometimes when the problems are really tricky, where there is no easy or simple answer to that, and you do have to get through all these things, um, it's easier for people to say that we'll deal with this when we have to. We'll cross this bridge when we have to. Yeah. What impact do you see this having on a business when this design debt begins to kind of build up and up? And or I guess if you are allowing that design debt to build up, you're also not sort of practicing design and product management in in the best way. So there's probably a multitude of impacts that it has. It, it does. It surely does. Um, so I, I would say that. Uh, as your design debt accumulate, you pay compounding interest on it. However, the cost is directly proportionate to the volume of debt. So how far you, uh, ahead you are in the debt, right? And uh, also on what things the debt is on. So if it's on the core feature, if it's on a central idea where a lot of things are based on it or a lot of future decisions and features uh, are surrounding it, then it will have a higher impact. For example, Every time you allow an exception, you're kind of bringing inconsistency in the product. And uh, before you know it, the product is ridden with components that look different, work differently. Users are complaining that the product is not intuitive. Um, customers feel that product uh, doesn't feel professional and so on. And um, it doesn't end there. Um, as in the case with every human being, we learn by not by what others say, but by what uh, what others do, like what they do. So if you if you think of it as a product team, as a as a cluster, as a group of people who are working together, every time an exception is allowed, it kind of indirectly passing the message to the team that it's okay to park some important decisions for future, to make exceptions, to take shortcuts, or to think uh, short term. And um, all of this is happening very subtly, not that somebody's intentionally planning it, but it's happening very subtly as day-to-day -day, um, work and, um, every, and every decision is impacted by it. Um, 
Again, before we know it, um, the problem has become bigger and it has become a problem of mindset, a problem of excellence um, in the team, how we make decisions, why one time exception is allowed versus other times it is not. So I, uh, exceptions, I, I would say, uh, should be treated carefully. Um, it, it, could have a re- it could have negative impact very easily. A very designer-specific debt um, that is produced around, um, let's say, uh, around design system. So as we go about designing new interfaces for different models, different workflows, journeys, because product is an ever-evolving thing, right? This is a discipline that does not affect, oh, and it's not really visible to everyone. But yes, if the design library is not maintained during the process, either because of lack of time or lack of discipline, then uh, for large scale products, especially where we know that this is a design language that we do need to that we need to follow, that it affects not just one product but an ecosystem of product. Uh, not having a design system in place or not having it up to date causes more confusion and problem and in a longer run it again slows the teams down so which means for a business the impact could be the uh, speed at which we can produce new concepts or uh, produce new designs or innovate for that matter right Um, so that's another impact uh, that design debts could um, uh, have on the business um, I, I, I wanted to throw in another angle there where um, more often than not, when you're working in the industry, which is regulated, where there are compliances involved. So, for example, for um, I have seen in my experience that for many healthcare product teams, accessibility is ignored during the early stage when a product is in inception or in early stages and later when now the product or the organization has become too big to ignore it, the problem has also become equally big. And at that point, the choice is to then either spend significant amount of time and money by hiring extra workforce who can just tackle this part, or you end up uh, utilizing your existing workforce, um, compromising on important um, features and things that they could be or should be working on otherwise, right? Um, the loss, the cost could be losing your customers to competitors because you had to spend a significant amount of time on clearing the design debt that you collected because the compliance was not followed from the get going. So different situation, uh, but ultimately leads and uh, affects the team uh, and the business in um, multiple ways. As a product leader, you want regular insights about how people are using your product. But when you don't have the capacity for ongoing UX research, where can you turn? AnswerLab is a UX research agency with the expertise companies rely on for scaling user research capabilities and giving actionable user insights. The experienced team of UX strategists, researchers, and research ops professionals bring a human-centered approach to research design, recruiting, and interviewing the right participants, and sharing results with product teams at the world's leading brands. Visit answerlab.com forward slash MTP to learn more and fill in a form for your chance to win a free ticket to mine the product San Francisco 2023. Use promo code MTP. That's answerlab.com forward slash MTP. 
I wanted to ask, so I've worked with some amazing designers over the years. I've also worked with some amazing developers. And some of what makes them amazing is their ability to get ahead of things in terms of understanding when to compromise and when not to and when to really hold the line. Mm. But sometimes sitting in the product manager chair, the job is feels like, who am I going to disappoint today? Who am I going to ask to make a big compromise today? So for people who are starting to see this and see, okay, I feel like I've got some design debt building up, or my designer is telling me there's a problem. From a practical perspective, how do I evaluate that effectively? How do I know when we're taking on too much and we really need to change our practices versus this is somebody who's just wants the ideal rather than the real world? That's a beautiful question. I hear, I hear you because again, um, I, I, you would always come across designers who are perfectionists who would say that go by the book. Everything should be followed, right? But we do not live in a perfect world, and you have to make trade offs on almost daily basis. Um, I would say that there there are a few um, flags that that can really guide you. That can really tell you that is it time to tackle this or you can you can push it for a time being. So, for example, when you see that um, a certain problem that was created because we took a shortcut in past, like how I was I, I was talking about earlier, right? That uh, there was this uh, that we never worked on the entire um, menu because it required information architecture, and um, it has come up once, twice, thrice in terms of planning for future when we want to design um, new features, and every time that comes in the way. That's that's the time when you start thinking about that. Maybe it's time to prioritize this. At least start. Let's let's put it in the backlog and um, see that when we can prioritize it. Another um, time is when you know that uh, it's a smaller request in terms of what it, what is to be done. A smaller design request, but the turnaround time is a lot uh, more comparatively. And um, you hear that why. And when you get into the why, and you hear that. Oh, because we do, we don't have the design files and we had to start from the scratch, or that what we what we have in the product or the development is that version is different than what we had in design because there were some changes made that were after that, or that um, I actually spent a lot of time figuring it out that what is the right style for the tabs because I found three different styles and couldn't figure it out that what is the right side the right style to go by. When you hear things like that, where you see that this is uh, this is again and again affecting either the speed at which the design work is done and delivered, it is forcing you to take poor to make more poor decisions uh, in terms of how we tackle the new feature or go about designing the new feature because of the past legacy or the past shortcuts that we um, have taken. These these are some of the um, guidelines. For example. There was this one CRM, uh, a tool that we were working on, and that had this feature called customize your navigation. Now, every time somebody complained about the navigation being hard to use or figure out, the answer was, but you can customize it how you want. We have this feature. However, when we did the discovery, uh, what was revealed was that half the users, um, they, they never knew that this feature existed. And more interestingly, the other half of them never used it because um, the inconvenience was not so big that they would go through the pain of configuring their own navigation. So they just lived with the inconvenience. 
and um, not only that the now in this case not doing the discovery upfront not um, going ahead with the feature that felt right in the moment not evaluating it later in the sense that are people using it if not then why they are not using it do we need to continue it or uh, discard it the cost is the time and effort that uh, every function of the product team that uh, put in to build that feature releasing and maintaining that feature and the limitation that it posed every time um, uh, in the future that we had to design something that involved cleaning up the menu or um, doing the information architecture or answering the um, customer feedback where they said that this is they're not able to figure it out it's not intuitive when i had a, a similar problem where we our navigation was not up to um, wasn't doing what we needed to do to provide a great customer experience Everyone wanted to fix it. You know, we had our uh, success team wanted to fix it. Our design team wanted to fix it. But we just hadn't been prioritized. And the way I worked with them on, on it was how do we translate this into a business benefit as well? So how do we show that there is a business problem that we're solving, that they, this takes a priority over other things instead of just a nice to have? Is that a skill set that you counsel designers to build up, you know, how to talk about things so that it gets prioritized rather as a business benefit, rather than just a, this is the right thing to do. A 100%. In fact, I have found that if I just use the designer's language that is understood by designers, and I say that because that, do this because this is how it should be done. I found that is the least effective way. We do need to translate uh, uh, into what business understands. And that's where um, we have to make a case for it, right? Where we say that, what is the implication of it? The implication is that in future, we won't be able to release faster because of this. The implication um, could be that, yes, um, we might have to significantly spend more time or um, hire some external help to do it. It will. It is going to cost us more time and effort uh, if not done now. And that's how we um, make a business case. I, I also um, recommend the designers, and I do it myself, that sometimes when I, as a designer, know that this is going to cause a problem, but it's it's not a big problem yet. It's not going to hit them hard yet. Every time I see, foresee it um, and I know that, oh, we had to do this because of this dependency, I'll make a note of it. So in a way, I would be, um, I, I make a backlog of my own or a note of my own saying that this design debt, what issues it has caused so far and how many more it has caused so that when the, when the time is right, when we are really discussing that point, I do have a strong case to make saying that, we had to compromise on these many fronts and um, this was the impact um, and this is the uh, future impact if we don't tackle it now or if we don't tackle it now, can we at least prioritize it for um, the next release or the next release, but somewhere would make it part of the um, design backlog, um, give it some definition and also associate some sort of a priority to it. So we've talked a lot about what design debt is and what causes it. Um what you've kind of mentioned there about like one technique to try and manage and reduce the the impact of the design debt which is that kind of impact assessment as you're doing the work making sure you're documenting it making sure you capture it in a backlog um and also you kind of mentioned as well about 
the design system as well and how that can help support sort of like ensuring not bringing introducing new design debt what are the other sort of tools and techniques that you use to try and manage this as a as a concept um i i look at it in two ways um lily one um when the design debt is has come to a point where you have to take corrective measures right and some many times as design teams you can actually or as product teams you can actually take preventive measures as well so one of the techniques that works really well for us um uh, for us some of the so, and this was one of our designers um who brought this up was that instead of coming to a point where we now have to um, keep things in check why don't we make it a system or a practice where every every one week or two weeks for uh and and we prioritize that how do we go about the projects but every one or two weeks we go after um looking we go and look at our design system uh, for every product and then one person from who is not part of that team would come would kind of glance through the entire design system do a check and um would say that if things are uh, as they should be if there are um discrepancies and how we should go about it and that the, even though it is not part planned as part of the um the sprint the design team is kind of aware that this is something that they need to tackle or this is something that they need to clean up or work on the design system so um whenever there is downtime so for example we are waiting between two feedback cycle right like the, we have shown the designs um, to stakeholders and uh, we are still gathering the feedback for us to work on the next iteration that could be the time when we can take up this house i call it housekeeping work um take up the housekeeping work of working on the design systems and making sure wherever because we had to make a faster delivery and we couldn't do the perfect work from in terms of minute organizing the design files and system we can take those things up um in this downtime in every sprint the uh, sprint um when as a product team we have decided that these are some of the things that not in one go but over the period of time we want to tackle then just like how you keep some wriggle room or some amount of time for grooming stories we also keep some time for um working on the design system as well as uh, any other design debt that we uh, might have thought of tackling so there is a plan in place but it's not that consecutively three full sprints are or, or x number of full sprints are um, allocated towards that work it's like every sprint we continuously work on it um, and that's how we clear the uh, debt along the side while making sure that we are not we are not making the mistakes or taking the shortcuts that will for, further uh, increase the debt and you mentioned earlier like one of the kind of causes of getting into a a state of having more design debt is often people skip user testing how do you ensure that user testing is sort of factored into the design process like you know often you'll see sort of like the dual track diagram with like design kind of working like one sprint ahead of of development but sort of in sync as well but if you're only like a little bit ahead then you might not have time to iterate a few times on on the design so what's your kind of like advice around uh managing that cadence of design alongside development 
So um, for wherever there is possibility and when we know that there is significant um, discovery that is required, then, of course, it is planned um, ahead of development. Uh, but you are right. For smaller features, sometimes we are working very uh, close to the development sprint. And in that, when that's the situation, what I've found to be most effective is instead of thinking of scheduling um, the user testing and then recruiting the users and then planning for testing um, once the design is done, kind of having it on a standby and on a recurring basis really helps. So for what do I, what I mean by that is uh, that if, depending on whatever is the velocity or the pace at which you are um, going, right? Uh, but having some user interviews or uh, user testing sessions planned every alternate week would make sure that you that when you have the designs ready is not when you are looking at the um, uh, recruitment, which could take time. And then by the time you have the users and you consolidate feedback and present something, it's already time for the development. Um, in fact, I've also what I've also found a very um, unique thing that uh, with one of the product managers that I was working with, that um, what he would do is. Um, we have these um, user interview, uh, user interviews and user feedback sessions going on um, for the design initiatives that we are working on. On the other hand, he would um, sometimes he would just have some one or two things that he wants to validate with um, the users for uh, the next thing that he's planning or the uh, features that he wants to release. And he would he would ask me that Bansi, is it okay that if I just take like ten or fifteen minutes from this interview that you have already scheduled, I'll just ask a few questions and I'll be out of your way. And I'll be like, yeah, sure, fine. Um, in fact, for users also, if we have scheduled forty five minutes and we ask them to do it for sixty minutes people usually don't mind. So it becomes very easy for him to just come in, ask what he wants to ask and um, get out. And I found that the similar approach can be taken by designers as well. So if you have some way of create of keeping a continuous cadence, because you know that as a design team, you will be, or as a product team, you will be working on one thing or the other and some feedback that you'll, you would require together, um, it, that, that works um, wonders. Amazing, Bansi. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Sadly, we've run out of time, but this has been really, really insightful and I've loved every minute of it. I'm so glad. I'm, I hope that this was um, useful. And uh, I, 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 uh, I, I mean, I, I had so many things to uh, share. So I, I, now I see your point <laughs> when you said that we, we might finish 30 minutes very fast. And I think that's what happened. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Bansi. The Product Experience is the first and the best podcast from Mind the Product. Our hosts are me, Lily Smith, and me, Randy Silver. Lou Ron Pratt is our producer, and Luke Smith is our editor. Our theme music is from Hamburg based band POW, that's P A U. Thanks to Arnie Kittler, who curates both Product Tank and MTP Engage in Hamburg, and who also plays bass in the band for letting us use their music. You can connect with your local product community via Product Tank, regular free meetups in over 200 cities worldwide. If there's not one near you, maybe you should think about starting one. To find out more, go to mindtheproduct.com forward slash product tank. <laughs>